This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. We've talked a lot about on the show recently about the Republican Party and American conservatism and its descent into madness, as it were. But a lot of the focus also in the story should be focused on Democrats as well, because the Democrats in America are kind of in an identity crisis right now. The Republican Party has very unpopular policies and is led by people who are very unpopular, like Donald Trump. But at the same time, Democrats barely have a majority in the U.S. House, which many people suppose they may lose in the 2022 elections and also have a 50-50 tie in the Senate. So the question is, how is it that Democrats have gotten to that point? And a lot of things have changed for Democrats in the past 20 to 30 years. There's a lot to think about right now. We've seen the rise of people who are calling themselves democratic socialists through the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. And he was able to, to really come from a backbencher in Vermont to one of the most popular Democratic politicians. But on the other hand, he wasn't able to win the Democratic nomination the two times that he tried. So there's a lot going on with Democrats right now. And I figured one of the best people to talk about that subject with me is Paul Glastris. He is the editor of Washington Monthly, and he's been there since 2001. And he also worked in the Bill Clinton White House. And so there's a lot that he's seen within the Democratic Party and the American left in general. So I am happy to be joined by Paul Glastris. Hey, Matt, how are you? Good. All right. Well, so for those who are not as familiar with your work, why don't you give everybody a little introduction to why did you come to D.C. and how did you get interested in progressive politics in general? Well, I, I don't come from a progressive background. My parents were, you know, pretty conservative. I grew up in exurban St. Louis in Missouri, and uh, it was in the 60s and 70s, and a lot of leftism was in the air, and I probably had a natural inclination to it. And But when I got to Washington, I didn't really have politics in mind. I didn't, I can't tell you how sort of disengaged politically I was a, as a young person. But uh, I interned, I did have some desire to write, thought I could write pretty well. And I interned at the Washington Monthly, this small magazine that I discovered. And Charlie Peters was the founder, a former state legislator in West Virginia and a JFK sort of ally who went on to be a founder of the Peace Corps and then in 1969, founder of the Washington Monthly. And it more or less expressed my politics as close as instinctively I could and uh, wound up being an editor there and then spent 10 years with U.S. News. And as I said, two and a half, as you mentioned, two and a half years as a speechwriter for Bill Clinton. And then when Charlie retired, I took over the magazine in 2001, turned it into a nonprofit, and I uh, have been editing it ever since. It's been a kind of a journey for me, as it's been, I think, for a lot of people to sort of figure out what your thoughts are, your positions are. You know, we do straight ahead journalism with reporting, but we also at the monthly write with a point of view. We're a magazine of opinion and openly so, uh, but very much focused on policy and you know, believers that that you can't have a politics without policy, that policy ultimately determines politics, although the you know recent years has certainly challenged that notion. In terms of just so I guess people can know 
have your have your do you think your views have evolved at all in in terms of like where you are see yourself in the democratic you know the the progressive left center left coalition i mean you you were in the clinton white house were you did you identify as a so-called new democrat at that time i think so i think that's fair to say on on certainly a lot of matters i did and i think like like all of us facts on the ground have changed right I think in the early 90s, when you had not the overabundance of capital that we have now, and interest rates really were tied to federal deficits, federal deficits actually mattered, right? And so cutting the deficit, as the Clinton administration did long before I got there in the early 90s, really had a a stimulative effect. Today, deficits, federal deficits, don't really have that effect. And you can run much bigger deficits without, um, you know, at some point, maybe fear of inflation, but certainly not now. So facts change. And I think my policies have certainly changed with the facts. I was also Mm -hmm. uh, married to a woman who was to my left and she had some effect on me over the years. She, she won a lot of arguments, (laughs) but you know, I think today, uh, even today we're uh, still believers in a kind of very a, a, a politics grounded in sound policy. And we've had some disagreements with the progressive left uh, today. And I've written pretty uh, openly about those disagreements. I thought Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's free college proposals were very poorly structured. And, and we've offered alternatives to that. And, you know, on a variety of reasons, uh, I'm still a big believer in community policing, which was the heart of the Clinton crime bill. I still think it's the, the, the sort of lens through which progressive policy and policymakers in general ought to think about crime, especially, you know, in these days when violent crime is up. So still think that that approach has a lot of value, but we have to, again, facts on the ground have changed. In the nineties, mm-hmm. uh, incomes were rising f- for all income classes, right? Uh, the, bottom 20% of earners saw their incomes rise faster than the top 20%. Well, that all changed in the in the 2000s. And we've seen now generational downward mobility for 80% of the population. So, so policies need to change. And one of the other things that changed was the Republican Party as well. Absolutely. Um, and and a lot of those forces had been in place for a long time. Uh, you you, you don't have... say. I, I live. I lived through Monica Lewinsky. I was there for that. So yes, I've seen yeah. those forces up close early, but they have grown. Yeah, and so, but at the same time, you know, so as the Republican Party has become, you know, openly pro-violent, you know, uh, insurrection and and you know, trying to lionize. Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was trying to break into to the you know open open the door so that people could break into the Capitol and kill Mike Pence, they're saying she was wrongfully murdered, and so the, the Republican Party has become this terrible apparition. And but at the same time, you know, Democrats have not been able to fill in the gap because I mean, why do, why do you suppose that is? Democrats right now have pretty low approval rating. Politicians, both Republicans and Democrats, have have, have low low ratings. I think we're in a a very anti-institutional era. People forget that almost everybody of voting age now 
not everybody, but f- anyone from the from the mid seventies on down to people in their fifties, that whole kind of upper, you know, the, the people who vote the most, they all live through the sixties, and they all imbued a kind of anti institutional rebellious against authority ethos. And let us be honest, our institutions have not performed well on a variety of scales, feeding that instinct. So to stand up and be a, a, a member of a political party trying to govern responsibly is, you know, going to limit just that identity limits your appeal. A lot of people just have no, have no truck with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, that's I think also one, one example. I mean, one, one, there's a lot of reasons why the Democrats are struggling. We can let us, you know, proceed to walk through all 20 reasons. But it's always been the case that the Democratic Party is a party of as a coalition party. And the Republican Party, increasingly over recent decades, is an ideological party and uh, an identity party. And, you know, we're living in an age of, of identity, of tribalism. I don't know that Democrats have quite the same coherent tribal identity. They are coalition. They represent you know, multiple races. They represent multiple classes. They represent some pretty conservative folks. They represent some. They represent the far left. They are a party pre- predominantly unified by the desire for government programs. And or a functioning uh, government, period. <laughs> certainly a functioning government. Absolutely. I wish Democrats were more focused on the inner workings, the functioning of government, and less on the next benefit that needs to be won. But yes, yeah, so so and and so Democrats have struggled with what their identity is because of who they are. They represent uh, put it this way. We, Ann Kim, a fine contributing editor of the Washington Monthly, had a piece uh, last week in, uh, at the WashingtonMonthly.com that provided some numbers that I had not seen. And it basically shows the degree to which Democrats rely on moderate voters. We think of the Democrats of has, having, you know, uh, lurched to the left and certainly the liberal left, self-identified liberal left within the party is much bigger. But the Democrats cannot win control of Congress, cannot win the White House without winning a supermajority of self-identified moderates. Republicans do not need a supermajority. They can win with a pretty modest majority, m- minority of moderates. That gives you a sense of the breadth of what the Democrats are and, in a sense, ideologically, the narrowness of what the what the Republicans are. The Republicans are a primarily conservative reactionary party. Democrats span a much wider ideological space. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And actually on the uh, Flux website, which Theory of Change is part of, uh, we actually have a piece up there today uh, on that very topic um, of how, but the interesting thing about that though is that uh, it seems it seems like a lot of people who are Democratic consultants or politicians they they don't seem to understand the full dynamics at work here because on the one hand you've got some people let's say who are affiliated with Bernie Sanders or you know support him, supported him they have this idea that the democratic base is a bunch of socialists that's the the constant democratic voter and as you said that's not correct but then at the same time you know you have a lot of of democratic 
you know, consultants or people who have been there in place for decades, like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, you know, when uh, there have been studies that have shown that the average member of Congress thinks that um, the average American is much more conservative than they actually are. You know, it's almost like Democrats don't know who votes for them. Do you think that's right? I do not underestimate the amount of information and savviness of people like Nancy Pelosi. She's in, you know, one of the, you know, will go down in history as one of the most capable speakers of the House. And she doesn't do that by being ignorant of who her voters are. But I, I will say this. I think Democrats for many, many years lost sight of what, of, of economic theory, of economic growth, of what defines liberal democratic policy when it comes to the economy. And there's really nothing more important than having that well thought through. Uh, Republicans have a, a, a theory of ec- economic growth that whether you think it's crackpot or not, everybody understands. Cut taxes, especially on the wealthy who will reinvest the taxes, cut regulations on business owners, and you will get more jobs and growth. And even under Donald Trump, who was somewhat of a big government conservative, that's what he delivered. He delivered tax cuts, corporate tax cuts, and deregulation. I personally think that's a not a formula for economic growth, but everyone understands it. I don't think most, most Americans know what the democratic theory of economic growth is, other than we're going to spend money on social programs, which isn't really a theory of economic growth. It's a theory of how I could put money in your pocket. Fine. Mm-hmm. But it's not a theory of how, do, how does the economy grow? And I think what's changed only in recent years is that the Democrats are beginning to get that back again. I, th- I would argue Bill Clinton had it in the early 90s. The economy is stupid. We knew what Bill Clinton had a theory of how he's going to bring back the economy. You know, he was going to kick open the doors of trade to Japan and, and, tra- and train people for these high wage high value jobs again, you know, whether you agree with it or think it worked or not, he ran on a coherent theory of change. I don't believe Joe Biden did. I didn't think he needed to, he could win without it. But Democrats recently have latched on to what I think is the right economic model, the economic theory of economic change. And that is anti-monopoly, antitrust. Um, And you saw Joe Biden who talked almost nothing about this during the campaign suddenly become its biggest champion. Um, I think Nancy Pelosi was very slow to it, but, you know, others pushed her in that direction. And uh, Chuck Schumer was slow to it. Others pushed him in that direction. And so now mm-hmm. the Democrats are the party of 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 challenging big businesses that quarter markets, which stops, you know, strangle startups and starve average people of wages because they have they don't have competing employers to to negotiate higher wages with. Well, and, and it's also, yeah, and it's also good on a political standpoint because, you know, a huge part of the appeal of Donald Trump, especially in 2016, he ran as an anti-big business person. Like, and a yep. lot of progressives and liberals didn't see that. Mm-hmm. They, they just saw him, at, you know, as this malignant fascist attacking various groups. But if you actually listen to what his speeches were, especially toward the end, he was talking about, you know, I'm going to go after these evil hedge funds. I'm going to you know, raise taxes on 
he literally said he was going to raise taxes on 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 uh, you know rapacious billionaires, um, and that he was a class traitor for, to the billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a that's a huge part of his appeal, and and even now this whole contrived anti big tech thing, like they're pushing very very hard for it, and you know as a matter of policy, it makes no sense because they're trying to claim that people have the somehow have the legal right to free uh, distribution on the internet. It's not, it doesn't work as a legal theory, but it works great as a campaign theory because now finally the party that is beholden to billionaires and lets them structure their tax plans can now say, oh yeah, actually we're the anti-big business guys. Right. They hate hate Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley has traditionally been you know, run, you know, the, the billionaires, you know, support Democrats. And, uh, but, you know, and Democrats were very slow to go after Silicon Valley because they were getting a lot of support from Silicon Valley. But all that's really changed a lot. So we'll have to see. I, I, uh, I think one of the problems for Democrats is that their percentages in small town, rural, exurban America uh, went down so low that they, had to run up such big margins in the metro areas, which they're doing, that they could barely win. If Democrats can raise their margins from, say, 20% in some of these Trump counties or, you know, to 40% in the Obama-Trump counties, just raise it 5%. It's almost game over for the Republicans because Democrats have now more or less run the table on metro areas almost everywhere. And but where they're really hurting is in these is in in these exurban small town rural areas. And what it nowhere in America are people more attuned than in these areas to the power of monopolies. Right. The, 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 they've lost their ba- local banks. If you're a farmer, you're paying excessive amounts for your inputs, your seed, your fertilizer. And you're selling to monopolist meat packers and grain operators. So people out less. here, yeah, who, yeah, you're you're selling. Yeah, they 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 are driving down the prices of your products and elevating the prices of your inputs. And so uh, all over rural America, and Democrats have not been talking to that to 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 rural Americans on those on those basis so, on that basis. So, but how did that happen? Because I I think you're right. But they're beginning. They were only now beginning to. Yeah, but there was such a difference, I think, between the campaign strategies of Hillary Clinton and that of her husband. And I, I, you know, it's it's something that that uh, I've wondered. You know, how Hillary Clinton seemed to be running as actively as the candidate of the you know big urban centers, and Bill Clinton tried to run as uh, from everywhere. Um, How how do you think that happened? That difference. Bill Clinton had a theory of economic change that was as true for small towns as it was metro areas. Neither Hillary nor really Biden adapted to the new world that, you know, just in 1992, 1996, we didn't have these locked up markets the way we do now. And it was possible to have policies that elevated rural America without going after big business. Today, it's not. You know, it, it, Democrats have just been slow to recognize how the economy has changed on them. Hillary had a special problem. You know, as a member of the Obama administration, she had to run as a 
a great champion of the policies, the economic policies of Barack Obama. And in many ways, that's fair enough. He, he did have some fantastically successful economic policies. But even as late as 2016, huge chunks of the public had not felt the impact because of the problems that I, I just described. And it, it, instead of being able to shift and, and talk about that, she very late in the game, at the very end, she began to talk about anti-monopoly. But, you know, she was talking as if Obama had made everybody's lives better. And he hadn't made everybody's life better. He'd made the lives better, mostly in places, Chicago and New York and L.A. and and so forth. So Democrats have just been very slow to adapt. Well, and you could and you could definitely make the case that, uh, you know, some of the blanket free trade policies of the Clinton administration did accelerate some of those negative trends, especially for working class people like, you know, people who were in who were in trade unions or people who were working in manufacturing jobs, that the way that a lot of these trade deals were structured, people, they, they did not take into account human rights abuses. They did not take into account wages or, or right to, you know, right to unionize, you know, and so a, a lot of American companies began to outsource production to China and other places where in some cases there were, there was literally slave labor. You know that was something that that Donald Trump was able to 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 make as a strong centerpiece of his, you know, especially with this anti-China message that he developed. And so, yeah, would you would you agree with that? Oh, no question. I think probably the history will uh, show that the single greatest failing failed decision of the Clinton administration was bringing China into the uh, World Trade Organization. Um, they had a theory. The theory was that the closer that China got into the international uh, global economy, the more it would uh, force China to play by the rules. It turned out that that wasn't the case at all. Uh, the World Trade Organization more or less insulated China from its predatory and statist mercantilist practices. And China was such a huge market that American corporations, to get at that market, had to play by China's rules. And as, you know, as it uh, result, we just decimated the American manufacturing base um, and a lot else. Um, yeah, and and a lot of those people were Democratic voters. You absolutely. Know, if, you, if you go you back and believe look, it. yeah, and if you go back, you know, if you look at and and I think the Pew Research Center and a couple of other places have you know done like decade long voter histories that you know a lot of people felt like Democrats abandoned them by not standing up against China's mercantilist you know, agenda. And, and of course, you know, the reality is that most of what Trump did with respect to China either didn't have any effect at all. Um, but some of it, you know, you could argue at least forced people to, at least forced people to pay attention to the subject. And to some degree, I think you could argue that Democrats, you know, part of their issue with adapting is that they have had more elderly people in contrast to Republicans. That the idea that, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi and, uh, you know, the average member of the House leadership in the Democratic uh, Party is significantly higher than among Republicans. And whereas, uh, you know, and Republicans, you could argue, had that same sort of transition earlier um, when Newt Gingrich came along and kind of upended a lot of their, their leadership. 
age has been an issue, I think, to some degree. Would you, what would you say to that? Hmm. I'm trying to think who the younger Democrats were. I mean, you know, the leader of the Democratic Party far and away for the middle 2000s was Barack Obama, who was barely old enough to be president. So there was a lot of... A lot of youth and vigor there, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, c- c- certainly, uh, certainly, but I mean, I just don't know how much older Nancy Pelosi is. I, I really don't know the answer to this. If, if you look back at the history of speakers of the House, very few of them were young, vigorous people. They were, they were the bulk of them late in their careers. So it's always good to have, to have youth, but I, I can't think of, too many younger Congress people over the last five or six years who had the ideas and the leadership ability that would have made things different. I mean, maybe there are. Well, yeah, I, again, let's just look at the Republican side. I mean, you had Paul Ryan, who was in his 40s when he was the Speaker of the House. You've got Kevin McCarthy, who's, you know, he's in his 50s. Before that, uh, Newt Gingrich, you know, uh, Robert Livingston. Gingrich. I mean, and they all failed yeah. miserably. They were all well, run that... out of town. I mean, yeah, sure, they were young and they they were terrible at the job. Of course, being Speaker of the House for the Republicans is is a little hard. That's harder. a death sentence, no matter who yeah. you are, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, but uh, you know, I think, yeah, I, I probably we're just probably going to agree to disagree. I mean, there's, it's certainly observably true that Democrats have Steny Hoyer and these old, you know, Jim Clyburn and these are old, Nancy Pelosi, these are older people. Schumer, yeah. Uh, Schumer. I'm just not sure that 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 explains what I'm talking about, which is a, I think, uh, as much a problem with the Democratic intelligentsia. The whole of the Democratic liberal establishment missed consolidation. They they simply didn't see the whole country and its markets getting locked up by billionaires and monopolists and, and how that would destroy wages, destroy innovation and wipe out small business. Both parties missed it, honestly. But again, you know, youth is kind of a good thing generally. Now, I guess I would say also, you know, one thing that I think a lot of people who are in the as you said, the you know left of center intelligentsia are aware, and you talk about this in a in an essay which you wrote about your twenty years of being the editor of Washington Monthly. That you guys noticed that the Republican Party had changed and wasn't acting in good faith, uh, you know, and wasn't trying to have policies anymore or wasn't trying to campaign on them. But while Democrats have wised up to that, I don't know that they tell the public what Republicans are doing. I, I would. It seems like they never talk about just how how much Republicans will use cultural or religious issues as just as a distraction. I mean, you know, look at this whole thing, they're, this obsession they're doing about transgender athletes. I mean, the number of transgender athletes who are out there just period is probably less than 50. And then when you look at trans women, they're not sweeping into athletic competitions and winning all the medals. And as a matter of fact, they, they do, you know, they do not win on general. Um, and that's why, for instance, on Fox News, they're always showing the same B-roll footage of the same people. So like in the Olympics, you know, that just concluded, there were four transgender w- women who had competed and none of them won an individual medal. So it's just this complete 
fraud as a matter of policy that you know you could you could give uh, all of them all you know every trans woman a gold medal and it wouldn't really affect anyone but democrats don't say these things very often they they don't talk about the distraction politics of republicans it seems you know i i, I think that's right um again remember democratic party is a coalition there are a lot of reliable Democratic voters, many of them minority, who are made uncomfortable by the whole elevation of the trans issue and don't understand these debates and don't understand fluid gender roles and, and all that. And uh, that it, it's not as if the entire Democratic Party are my kids, right, living in Brooklyn um, with leftist views. So it's not really in the interest of a lot of Democrats to talk about that stuff. And, and the truth is it's Democrats who elevated the trans issue by t- championing trans rights. So it's, it's hard to blame Republicans as just a matter of politics for taking the issue on. I do think that there's been a, a wholesale abandonment of policy on the, on the Republican side. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember a Republican party that, that, um, whether you agreed with the ideas or not, certainly engaged in good faith debate over policy. And that is just less and less true. Not, let, let us be honest, not all Republicans. There's, there's still many lawmakers who would like nothing better than to be legislating and, and engaging, but they aren't allowed to by their, by their masters, by the base, by the, the conservative entertainment complex, which is always sending them on to the next you know, shiny optic, you know, trans athletes, as you were saying before. And it is it has fallen on the Democrats more and more to be the responsible party on policy. And but this um, is yeah, but this is I mean, it, it points to a failure, though, that the Democratic leadership won't talk about this dynamic as it exists. They won't talk about that the Republican Party is is a simulacrum of a political party now. It is basically a cultural grievance machine in the service of a, a handful of Christian right billionaires. Like, that's basically all it is now. And they don't talk about this. And and what's interesting further, I would say, is that when you look at... So there is a lot of discontent among younger Democratic socialist Bernie Sanders type supporters but they never they don't seem to realize that in order for them to change the democrats first the republicans have to be completely defeated um in the same way that franklin roosevelt was not able to pursue a lot of his larger plans until he had taken his massive congressional majority there was just no me- you know people there was just simply no mechanism where it could could be achieved. And there, you know, there's this a lot of pushback of saying, oh, well, we need to force as many votes on different things and make Joe Manchin squirm or, or you know, Kirsten Cinema. Well, that's fine. You can do that. But what have you accomplished in doing that? You know, what, right. Um, and, you know, if you really want to have change, you've got to, you've got to, to beat these Republican politicians. And, and that's what you need to focus your energy on, not on saying how much you think the Democratic Party sucks. Because again, you could be 100% correct in everything you say, but if you have no mechanism to implement your ideas, well, then you've wasted your time. Uh, that's right. And, and it, it I, I do credit the left, Bernie Sanders in particular, you know, the squad AOC, with recognizing 
the degree to which they need moderate swing district Democrats and a president with 50% plus approval ratings to hold on to power, to get anything done. And, and so they've been far more accommodating, far more easier for the leadership to work with, far less prone to blow things up than uh, a lot of people predicted. And that was the case in the Republican Party during in recent years. You know, the, the, you don't have the kind of crazy behavior, even the furthest extremes of the American left, that you did with the Tea Party Republicans who were, you know, shutting down the government and you know, damaging Republicans and damaging the country. So so there there is more of a pragmatic understanding both among moderates and Democrats that we're that we're in this together, which is not to say that the progressives won't primary every Democrat who's not sufficiently left that they can or that they won't negotiate uh, hard. But we've just not seen the self-destruction among Democrats during the last year that we saw among Republicans for many years. Yeah, I think that's true. And but at the same time, it's interesting to see that a lot of people who are, you know, self-styled, you know, internet commentators about politics, they have noticed what you just said as well, and they're angry about it. You know, a yeah. lot of people in the, you know, uh, the online socialist scene or so so-called socialist scene are going out there and saying that they hate AOC now, that she's a sellout, uh, that they hate the squad, and it's led to the formation of kind of this sort of anti-democrat fake leftism that we're seeing now you know we're, and and there are a lot of people that are out there doing that now and and I talked about it in my previous episode with Eric Bollert um but you know you've been a member of the left of center media scene for a while um you know we've seen you know people like Glenn Greenwald like Matt Taibbi like Michael Tracy you know people who basically are, have become anti-democrat and somehow never really talk about their own <laughs> beliefs. So we actually don't know what they believe anymore. Like, are right. they socialists? Are they communists? You know, are they moderates? What are they? And and they don't engage with their critics on the left anymore. So there's no record of what they actually believe anymore. I know a lot of young people, just because I had kids, you know, who are in their 20s and 30s. And I, I think there's an audience. I think there's a more than an audience. There's a, a constituency. There are voters who are situational Democrats. They'll support Democrats, but they don't feel represented by establishment Democrats. They don't identify as Democrats. They want something very different than they're getting. And there's probably more of them now on the left than was the case five, 10 years ago. How they coalesce, where they go in the future could be a, you know, could have major implications, but might my sense is right now it's a Twitter phenomenon and somebody like AOC is very, very savvy politically and knows how to keep her folks inside the tent and, and wield that support in, in a way that can bring enough victories that, that they stay with her. But you, you're right. It, there is this growing and it's, it's, it's not any one thing. It's socialists or and, and socialism itself is obviously a, a very hard to, def, you know, 
for a century been hard to define, especially in America. But there's the, the more the libertarian left, the Glenn Greenwald types, and and so they don't cohere among themselves either. Yeah. Well, the paradox is that that in order to build lasting and real change, you have to have at least something of a conservative sensibility in order to understand how things existed before and how they can be you know, improved for in a meaningful and lasting way for the long term. But for people who have this sort of, you know, burn it all down leftist mentality, revolutionary mentality, that doesn't make sense to them. Um, and it's hard to understand. And it kind of is, I, I, to some degree, it's it's easier to to exist in this country as a social phenomenon because we have never had a Fabian socialist tradition here in America, where this idea that if you want socialism, you have to gradually go into it because people can't understand it and won't accept it. We never had that tradition here in America. No, um, no, we, we built we built social provisions through liberalism, not socialism, right? Yeah. FDR was very much not a socialist. He was attacked relentlessly by socialists. And, you know, FDR had that sense of that feel for conservative America that made him successful. Look, there are two things are true. We have an insufficiently built out social safety net. We have for years. The left is correct about that. But we also are a, in our bones, individualistic capitalist society. Our identity is that. And, you know, what a politics that is singularly focused on building out the social safety net misses is what I was talking about before. What is the theory of economic growth? And, you know, FDR didn't just create social security. He busted monopolies more than any other president and created space for small towns, you know, entrepreneurs and for competition in every realm of, of industrial life, in broadcast, in every other in every other sector and allowed individuals to have a piece of the pie that they owned, that they controlled. He dispersed economic power from the corporate elite down to literally Main Street. That was a form of deep democracy that is, I don't want to say uniquely American, but it is quintessentially American. It goes back to the founding, it goes back to the you know, the Northwest Territories. It's a deeply American thing. And it's not just the left that's lost, that for many years lost touch with that. Elites in both parties lost touch with it. So there's a role for the left in pushing for broader social welfare, but there's a strong argument for Democrats and Republicans, all of them, uh, understanding that there is an American tradition of how to run an economy with rules that allow individuals to compete fairly in fair markets. And it's also just to underline what you said, it's a, it's a, it's relating it to economic growth and showing it's not just about, well, we're going to make things more fair because for a lot of people, they don't understand that they're not in the 1% or anywhere close to it. And they don't understand how the system actually harms them. That they yeah. absolutely don't understand. And that, again, it's a failure of elites. It's a failure of democratic leaders, and it's a failure of journalists and a failure of the cognoscenti to explain 
first to understand and then to explain how the economy has changed with the rise of these these oligopolistic corporations in ways that hurt the average person, right? Yeah. We've lost the language. Look, I, I went to college in, in the late 70s, early 80s, studied economics, heard about the mixed economy and lived through the Milton Friedman revolution. And, you know, we were taught an economics that was not integrated with this larger tradition. It was, you know, economic theory. Um, economic theory is very different from industrial structure and the realities of an economy on the ground. And, um, you know, we lost our way as a country and the turmoil we're going through political and otherwise really is tied to that, that economic wrong turn that led to these enormous inequalities and this generational downward mobility, but it's fixable. I mean, it's not entirely just economic concern, though. I mean, that's I think we, we should be careful to point that out, that a lot of the success that Republicans have had is is using identity, as you said, you know, using Christian identity, especially. And like, for instance, Josh Mandel, who was uh, running for Senate in Ohio, you know, he he literally said at a, at a campaign event recently that when I go to Washington, I'm going to have two documents with me, the Constitution and the Bible. I feel like a lot of, of establishment media journalists or and establishment Democrats, they don't they're uncomfortable, it seems like, talking about this rank Christian supremacism as a campaign strategy that we see. And it's so common in right wing media. Like they're just that's that's how they get their audiences to, you know, say, uh, I'm out here pushing for the Bible. I stand for, you know, Christ. And like that's like Jenna Ellis, who is Donald Trump, was one of Donald Trump's uh, uh, election heist lawyers. You know, she, on her she's constantly posting Bible verses and trying to tell people who are Christians that, you know, you have to agree with me. And I don't see a lot of pushback in in left of center or mainstream democratic places where they talk about this stuff. You know, I think it's very important. And I don't think, again, I, I'm a little less of a blamer of politicians and a little bit more of a blamer of the intelligentsia. You're a politician. You're just trying to survive, man. You're just trying to win votes so you can get back to your job. And, you know, we expect the politicians to educate the public. It's not the job of the politician to educate the public. It's the job of the politician to take whatever public sentiment is exists and see if they can do some, you know, legislating with it. The people who need to be doing the educating are frankly people like us, you know, people with audiences, people who analyze and argue for a living, people who report what is. And, and so I think it's, it's, it, it is more on the, on the press to to describe precisely what it is you're seeing. Again, you're, you're, you're a Democrat, you're running for office, you know, you're trying to get the African-American vote. That's a, in many parts of this country, a very Christian vote, right? The, the, these are people, many, many of them who are very devout, very devoted to the church, very engaged in, in Christian self-identity. And it's tricky for them to find the language to distinguish between what you're saying and respect for the voters' devotion. And and so it's tricky. It's a very, you know, religion is a, a very hard place to 
to talk a hard thing to talk about. But you know what we need are liberal Christians with voices speaking from their faith on the issues and to their fellow Christians who are behaving in ways that are anti-democratic and crackpot. Those are the voices that I think would be very helpful to elevate. Yeah, no, and that's the thing. Like, they are not often elevated. Um, no. <laughs> like, you know, you you open up the New York Times or watch uh, broadcast news or cable news. Like, they don't talk to these people. To the only extent they talk about religion at all, it's, oh, well, you know, here is what Pat Robertson said. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. Like, mostly they ignore everything else. And, you know, I, and a lot of it is I because a, a lot of journalists come from more secular backgrounds or personal, you know, regular experiences. So they're not familiar with these topics and, and they don't understand that they're very important to a lot of people. And that the A, you have to tell people what's happening. Uh, so like, for instance, in the, his, the, in 2020, the Hispanic vote shifted several points toward Donald Trump. And a lot of that had to do with the rise of evangelicalism, specifically white evangelicalism exported into Hispanic communities and, and worked successfully. And, you know, uh, there's just this sense that uh, among a, a complacency among a lot of progressive, both, I would say, consultants and, and um, commentators that, you know, people who are Hispanic or Democrat, you know, or African-American are just going to sort of, by default, go for the Democrats. And right. the reality is, if you, if Republicans ever did, and they actually now are showing signs that they are, the, if their religious right would would actually bother trying to have outreach to people who were not white. They could get a whole bunch of voters, and we're seeing that trend start to happen now. And like, well, and, and and again, if you look at Trump the... as well, like he got the highest percentage of of black Americans voting for him since the 1960s. Yeah, as a Republican, um, you know, and, and 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 what what role religion had in that, and 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 some other things. Um, Black people, Hispanic people, they have the same range of liberal and conservative as any anybody else. They they happen to vote Democratic for historical and darn good historical reasons, but they could be appealed to, just as you know, re- Democrats are appealing to the common sense and civic mindedness of a, of a lot of Republicans who've been turned off by the the turn of the Republican Party. But you know, going back to the religion point, remember the Democrats also have a massive share of the unaffiliated, right? These are not necessarily unspiritual people, but they're people who do not affiliate with an organized religion. So yeah. any Democratic politician has to weigh, you know, how they talk about, because if it's too secular, they, they lose the devout. And if it's too devout, they lose the secular. Whereas Republicans can turn it up to 11 on Christianity and they still keep 80, 90%. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. And, um, uh... Just goes back to the the necessity of, of of people who are left of center pointing out, you know, just what a what a, a scam the whole Republican argument is. Well, let, let let's go back to the to your 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 twenty year essay and something you mentioned at the beginning. So when you took over Washington Monthly, one of the things that you did was was made it into a nonprofit, and you know it looks like we're seeing now that a kind of an explosion of of nonprofit high quality media. Um, why do you think that is a, and then why did you decide to take Washington monthly as a nonprofit and B, why do you think that that's something other people should be thinking about? 
It was Charlie Peters' idea that uh, it become a nonprofit. He he had been running the magazine as a for-profit that made no profits for long enough to recognize that that model was done, certainly for a small magazine, and that if you if you move to the nonprofit, then you can provide a, a place for people to make tax-deductible donations, as well as sell ads and subscriptions. So it made a lot of sense uh, for you know a small margin little enterprise like the Washington Monthly. And, you know, it's still not easy. You know, we still are a, a magazine that, that you know, this is not something you do to, to make a lot of money, but it does provide a funding base um, through individual donations, uh, large and small through foundations and so forth. And, you know, in an era where, you know, advertising has shrunk considerably and, and uh, you need to have as many income streams as you can get. And it has its, it, you have to have a board to answer to. And it's, you know, when Charlie had my job, he didn't answer to anybody. I have a board, which is fine, but it, there's no perfect structure, but I found the nonprofit model to, to suit us quite well. Okay. Yeah. I guess we're also seeing the kind of the rise of, of crowdfunded media as well. And there are pluses and minuses to that. You know, we'd mentioned some of these uh, anti, anti-democratic faux-left people or former left. I'm not sure what they are now. They're making tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars a month off of this stuff. And I think you could argue that in some ways it's been great that the Internet has enabled independent voices a lot more and people who were not did not have access to independent, you know, to mainstream press and mass audiences. That's been great. But at the same time, there's a. I think there's a role for editing that uh, that you were talking about that that people may not appreciate necessarily. It's uh, uh, quite a good thing that there is the substackization, as we call it, of the or some people call it of 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 journalism, where individuals who want to write without oversight directly to an audience now have the technology to do that. Uh, bloggers had it before, but this is a, a way to, you know, monetize the work through subscriptions that is a lot easier than it used to be. And uh, a lot of people are making a lot of money at it and, and you know, fine for them. Um, it's just part of the larger disaggregation of journalism. Um, it came around, you know, part of it is Facebook and Twitter, right? People don't necessarily have to go to my magazine's website to see it's content. They can catch what they like on Twitter. You know, mo- most people go to most people who in my business, anyway, in my, in my world, check Twitter to see what the Atlantic has recently published rather than go to the Atlantic to read what's on the front page of the Atlantic. And, you know, this is a further disaggregation uh, where, you you know, the content isn't even coming to you from a content producer, a magazine, a newspaper, it's coming to you from an individual. So in many ways, that's a good thing, but everybody needs an editor. Everybody benefits from editing. I certainly do. And everything I write gets vetted with my colleagues, fact-checked, copy-edited, and thought-edited, and challenged by you know people as smarter, smarter than I am. And I, I think, especially when you're dealing in the realm of provable fact, and research, you know, you better be right. You better have described what it is you're writing about accurately with good sourcing. And your arguments should be coherent and fair. 
Um, and that just takes internal work. That takes editing. What the Washington Monthly and, and magazines like it are, are really editing machines. It's why someone would come and post with, to us with us. We have an audience, but we also provide a lot of this back-end intellectual curating, thinking. Often the ideas come out from, you know, we're the ones commissioning the article from the writer. That That's what creates a kind of integrity and identity to a to a uh, publication that is, is hard, frankly, for anyone to see who is not on the inside. Yeah, going back to what you were saying about trying to confirm facts and things like that, that has been a real problem that we're seeing with a lot of internet-based content or independent media-based content that the, the, I think the, the hardest thing in journalism is to know what you don't know. Right. And so well, you may get some bit of information from somebody or you see something yourself. That doesn't mean it's true. We're seeing that a lot with regard to data analysis, especially I think now that you know, you, you've got a lot of people that they may know how to push some numbers around in Excel, but that doesn't mean they understand them. You know, just because you have data doesn't mean you should use it. And the same thing is true with regard to a lot of things. And we're in this space here where a lot of people who have developed platforms are specifically going away from traditional media so that they won't have editors. I mean, for instance, Glenn Greenwald, you know, he specifically wanted to get away from his editors at The Intercept, uh, which he was at before and was a co-founder of. He didn't like them fact-checking him. And so he went and did his own thing. I mean, where, where do you see where that's ending? Yeah, I don't know. And I, I, I know editors at other publications, some of them much bigger than ours, who are wrestling with the question. For instance, if you've got a writer who is a star and what you want to do is keep that writer with you and not go out and launch his or her own uh, sub stack where they might be able to make more money, they have negotiating power over you. And they can say, look, I don't want to be edited, <laughs> right? And are you going to say, all right, we won't edit you? Um, I don't want to be fact-checked. So it's causing internal struggles within organizations. And I honestly don't know how it's going to shake out. I would say I, I don't have enough faith in myself as a writer to go independent. I, I would be scared to death not to work coll collegially I know my work is always made better by collaborating with smart people. It's just how I'm comfortable working. It's how I've always worked. It doesn't mean you don't have a voice. It doesn't mean you don't write what you want to write. It's just, it makes your work better. Yeah. Um, and hopefully audiences will see that. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, ultimately probably each side in that needs to, to learn from the other side so that, you know, in a lot of publications, in my own experience, I've seen editors who didn't understand a story. And so therefore they didn't want to do it. And then, right. you know, somebody else did the story and it got, you know, millions of views. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you yeah, know, I've been in yeah. that situation so many times I was like, look guys, I was, you know, I was right about this. Wasn't I? Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry, Matt. Well, you know, but yeah. at the same time, yeah, we've, when you, when you think you know something and you don't know it, you know, that's, you get into all kinds well, of problems. Well, you know, what people used to do is if they couldn't sell something to one paper or magazine, they went to another, you know, more congenial, find yourself an editor who gets it. It's hard to, if you're stuck in one publication to have your way, uh, especially if you're not the boss. This is something new. This is literally people publishing their own things with no, no oversight, no help, no 
gatekeeping at all. And good for them. And, you know, some of these places are are a little bit more collegial, but it, it is, uh, I don't want to say it's something new under the sun because there, there are precedents for it. Blogging being the most recent one, it is going to change things. It already yeah. has. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Paul Glasteris, I'd like to say thanks for, for joining me today. And I'm going to put up on the screen for those who are watching, and then I'm going to read it out, your social information. So uh, you're the editor of Washington Monthly, and you're on Twitter at Glasteris. So that's G-L-A-S-T-R-I-S. So thanks for joining me today, Paul. Matt, thank you. It's WashingtonMonthly.com if you want to read the publication and, and subscribe there. And, and I really uh, am grateful for the chance to talk to your, to your audience and have them get a little bit more sense of what we do. And really grateful for you having me on. Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself, so you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.